Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are rereading our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Matra novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, catch us up, would you please? Where were we last time? Where might we be heading this week? I'd love to, Ian. Thanks. So last time in Chapter 2, Paul Skeeping became Stephen's new loblolly girl, air quotes. Mm. I know you can't see them like we had last (laughs) week. And Jack and the squadron saved a merchant convoy from a a big group of pirate Zebex and galleys. Captain Pomfrey sought Stephen's help with his overwhelming guilt at commanding the Pomone to kill hundreds of Christian slaves on those galleys. This time in Chapter 3, we have another tragic death in the squadron and continued threat of bad luck and ill omens, Killick's rise and fall, a German flute-playing Marine officer, never bodes well. (laughs) That's right. Lucky objects threatened, and a little bit of music as the naval and intelligence missions continue. So, Mike, we've got a fairly short chapter here. I think it's going to be a short but sweet episode this week. We are still, to begin with, uh, with Stephen and Jacob, as they are reflecting how pleasing it is that we've made a fast, smooth journey into Gibraltar with patients aboard who need treatment. Several of those patients benefit from getting moved ashore to the hospital. And as Stephen and Jacob finish helping out with the surgeries for a local emergency, a midshipman arrives with a note from Commodore Aubrey asking them to return to the surprise at once. And this boat ride turns into quite a serious, hurried affair. And Stephen looks across at the Pomone and notices the bedraggled appearance of what is usually the more than trim and ship shape Pomone. And maybe those of you who've paid attention to how these things go get an inkling of what might be going on here. Stephen is a couple of steps behind us, I think. And as he gets aboard the surprise, Jack asks Stephen about their patience assuming, I think, that Stephen can already tell what's happened here, but goes on and tells him that the Pomone's captain, Hugh Pomfret, had a shocking accident. As Jack describes the event, Pomfret was cleaning his pistols. One of them was loaded and blew out his brains. Now, Mike, I think we think the same thing about Pomfret's death that the crew of the Surprise do, but Jack being a very proper and correct 19th century gentleman isn't going to allude to what's probably really happened here. So, the Pomone is without a captain. The Pomone is in mourning, hence all the rigging askew. And that means that something needs to be done within the squadron. The Admiral sends for Jack, complimented, commended, in fact, the squadron on their success, had passed on the news of this accident and had delivered orders from the Ministry to send the squadron to sea immediately to deal with the Balkan Muslims. And Mike, we've had a a couple of chapters already of build-up telling us how important these Balkan Muslims might be to the plan to put a spanner in the works of Napoleon Bonaparte's potential reconquest of Western Europe. We hear that John Vaux, a gentleman who distinguished himself in 1804 with the taking and arming of Diamond Rock, had been made post and is going to be put in there to command the Pomone. So, Mike, the command of the Pomone has been turned over pretty quickly, and it seems that there's going to be a fresh mission here. Yeah, they've got this new commander, and and Jack's telling him that 
you know, they're to proceed to Mahan to ship Marines and finish refitting, you know, and they're like leaving at once. Jack says that this new captain is going to have the Pomone ready to join them and out of mourning. You know, and Jack says, well, you, you no doubt saw her yards all a cockbill and her scandalized mizzen. Hmm. Jack's very proper, of course, but horrible to see. And I think this is what you were alluding to, Ian, that yeah. she was all dressed out, this scandalized mizzen, you know, a sign of mourning. Jack knows this. He feels very deeply about it. Stephen's like, you know, how come she's such a mess today here? We're getting a bit of a pattern emerging now. If you look back through the the first three chapters, Mike, something something's going on here that we're getting, uh, you know, repetition when it happens is meaningful. And what are we getting repeated here? Well, it, it's amazing. And I think you and I both kind of came back to this after we'd read this yeah. thing separately a couple of times. You know, death figures so prominently in this book and in very different ways. In barely two chapters, we've had four reported deaths of major characters. Now we've got, you know, more than a heavy frigate's crew of battle casualties we learned about last time. Yeah. Uh, now this, as, as you say, in a likely suicide in Pomfret's reaction, his personal reaction to having ordered those deaths. In a minute, we're going to have a couple of lucky objects, which we'll discuss more. But, you know, as I was thinking about those, and I mentioned it now because, you know, it's this theme of death, both of those lucky objects come from deaths of their own. So, you know, I kept wondering, obviously, this has got to have something to do with O'Brien, um, but yet, but he's not really focusing on Stephen and Diana. And I, I was trying to think, what, what could this be? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see, I think, even more mentions of death as the book gets underway. No, you know, no great spoilers there. It occurred to me that maybe we're getting so many individual deaths, partly because O'Brien wants to kind of dilute the subject. If we focus just on Stephen and his bereavement, that would take O'Brien into a direction that would be incredibly painful for him. And I think death is on his mind, and we're getting maybe some of the deaths of these secondary characters to sort of even out or wash away some of the acuteness of his grief. Maybe. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here we have Stephen in the context of lots of other death. Uh, but Mike, we're, we're headed someplace that's pretty familiar, right? We are. We're going back to Mahan, and what, one day I hope you and I are going to be going to Mahan. I know, oh, I know you, be great. you've been over that way a bunch. I never have. I, I would long to uh, to see this. So, yeah, they're going that evening. As I mentioned, they're going to complete their stores and repairs and pick up the latest intelligence from the Adriatic, uh, as well as the other part of the squadron's mission, find out which convoys need to be protected in the eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. Well, they're, they're underway, we're going, and the scene shifts to what O'Brien calls the smoking circle. You know, we're kind of down below in the galley. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us it's usually filled with easy conversation, which is enlivened by anecdotes. And, you know, they're in the galley, Tonight, Paul Skeeping comes in, trips over the cheese of wads when she's entering, and flings an entire full boiling teapot at a gentleman named Joshua Simmons, known to all as Old Grown. And, and O'Brien tells us that this <laughs> is a man who's kind of barely tolerated aboard because he had served at the Nile with Jack and under Nelson and at Copenhagen and Trafalgar. So, you know, a guy that, okay, you know, he's, he's got the bona fides, but nobody seems to like him here. No, old groin. Also, also now known as boiled groin, I think, looking at where the teapot got spilled. Now, <laughs> uh, despite all the efforts on Paul's part, 
to clean up this guy and dry him off. He's not comforted. He's not mollified. He's not the kind of person to easily come down from feeling outraged. He says, well, this is a fine beginning. An unlucky squadron, if ever there was one. Those bloody Indiamen never gave us so much as a brass farthing between us, though we saved their lives and fortunes. And now there's this wicked self-murder in Pomone. How can there be any luck in such a commission, which is doomed from the bleeding start? And Mike, we said last time, I think, that there are plenty of occasions in the opening chapters of Patrick O'Brien books where somebody says, we're doomed. And it seems like we're in for more of the same here. We've got bad omens. We've got somebody discontented in the sort of, um, you know, warrant officer level class of the crew. Um, but somebody's going to stand up to him, right? Somebody's going to tell him he's wrong. He does. You know, Killick replies, balls. And, and Maggie Cheel, yeah. who's, who's there in the smoking circle, reminds Killick that there's what she calls no seven dials talk when there are, you know, members of the fair sex present. And the cook says, you know, old grown can't know that it was self-murder because he didn't see it. Right. And Killick says, yeah, that's right. And if it had been self-murder, this guy would have been buried at the crossroads with a stake through his heart. But Pomfret was buried in a Christian cemetery with words spoken over him by a parson. And the admiral was in attendance. So Killick makes his concluding remarks. So be damned to Old Groan and his bad luck. Old Groan, O'Brien tells us, gives a bitter sniff and walks off. Yeah. Kelly's good at putting people down. He did that with Grimshaw, didn't he? <laughs> a couple yeah, of times, a couple of books ago. Oh, very good. So uh, I, I don't think anybody else is buying this as anything other than polite face-saving and banter from Killick. Um, but to the rest of the group, Killick goes on. Even if Pomfret had committed suicide a dozen times over, we have a gent, he says. We have a gent aboard that brings in luck by wholesale. And he tells them about what he thinks of as a unicorn horn, a whole and entire unicorn horn that he says is known to be proof against all poisons and is worth 10 times its weight in guinea gold. And if that's not enough, says Killick, he also has a hand of glory, concluding, there's luck for you. Now, clearly the gent that he's talking about is Stephen. He's talking about the, the hand with the aponeurosis. He's talking about the normal horn, not a unicorn horn. But he goes on and explains for us exactly why it is that this hand might be seen as lucky. Yeah, this hand of glory, he says, is one of the hangman's prime prerequisites. And of course, everybody's like, what's a prerequisite? We would call it a perk. Yeah. Uh, they had a number of other phrases here. But, you know, these are, you know, one of the valuable things that a hangman gets. He gets the rope thought to be very lucky he yeah. gets soiled linen from you know from the executed person especially women's he points out very lucky and the, the, the ladies aren't pleased to hear that and you know they're worth a guinea for the luck they bring but none of them none of them he says compares to the hand of glory which is worth its weight in gold or at least in silver for the luck it brings and they keep saying but but what is it what is it? and he says ah it's the hand that done the deed, you know, slit the person's throat or strangled. Yeah. You know, and that hand, the uh, executioner cuts off and takes with him. Now, Killick says the doctor has one in a jar. He keeps secret in his cabin and looks at it night, talking very low with his mate. <laughs> 
It, 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 this is funny anyway because of you know somebody else's perspective on Stephen and his weird scientificness. And it, it's nice as well because this could be just one of those little moments when somebody's completely misunderstood Stephen. Or it could be the opening to a whole load of other misunderstandings, you know, like rats with matter in their bones. It, 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 it's great. It opens up a whole potential nice light plot line that I think we could do with right now. So, as you say, Mike, they arrive at our... Uh, our old favorite destination, Port Mahon, the late, because some of the ships in the squadron are not as fast as the Surprise and the Pomone. Jack and Stephen, who I don't think I've been in Mahon since maybe Treason's Harbor, but I'm not sure. It's been several books anyway since they were in Mahon. And Stephen and Jack noticed that not much has changed, even though the Spanish are nominally in charge following the treaty at the end of the previous war. This is still a British base. And not much outwardly has changed. They glide in along this inlet. Mahon is a, what is it, second largest natural harbor in the world. It's a long old wow. sail up the inlet to the harbor. They notice the landmarks, the famous pigtail stairs. They notice the beautiful sun. And that's another great keynote for O'Brien. If he's talking about light and sky, he's trying to give us a good impression. And he talks about the fruit and the blossoms of the orchards which takes in the in the direction, I think, of the natural world and comfort for Stephen. And Stephen points out an Eleonora's falcon. So, Mike, it's it's a bird. It's a bird reference, and Stephen spots it. And it's in Mahon, which is a fairly fortuitous place. I'm I'm hoping for great things from Eleonora's falcon. What have we got? Right. Well, it it really was. I th- I thought the same thing, and I thought, okay, so he's had a lot of bird references that were all kind of, you know, yeah. They're the birds we expect to be there. We've also had some bird metaphors that have been great. This one seems to be one of O'Brien's, you know, it, it's very much uh, one of his kind of Easter eggs that he often plants for us in a couple of ways. One, Eleanor's falcon is is named after Eleanor of Arborea, the queen or the lady judge of Sardinia. Huh. In 1392, from a natural, you know, kind of philosopher perspective, Eleanor became the first ruler in history to grant protection to hawk and falcon nests against illegal hunters. And this falcon may have been the first bird in the world to get specific legal protection. So, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. And Eleanor herself is another great O'Brien reference to accomplished women of earlier eras, that yeah. time when, you know, the patriarchy rules with a strong hand, but somehow women like Eleanor and Diana and others in you know so many of the references that we've seen find a way to survive and and sometimes overcome. She was an astute political force. She worked to unite pretty much all of Sardinia, which hadn't been done. There was a succession void, and you know she was there was no direct. She was trying to line up one of her sons, and she finally filled the void, uh, invoking a historical precedent for female rule as a lady judge. Um, and she played a very important role in pulling Sardinia out of the Middle Ages. She was working for the people, with the people, liberated serfs, started building a very widespread popular political power. So I, I can see, you know, Stephen kind of really resonating with this, O'Brien uh-huh. too, uh, a struggle which sadly was cut short by the plague. So kind of history stops there. Now, from a from a natural history point of view, 
you know, this is another one of these birds that has these unbelievably long migratory patterns, flies 5,000 miles each way at least, lives while it's flying on insects, you know, such as dragonflies that are often caught in flight and, and eaten along the way. And on land, really fascinated, it's been observed catching and imprisoning small birds, removes their flight mm-hmm. feathers, uh, it, it then saves them in their, you know, in these little crevices and feeds them sometimes days later to their young. This is wow. completely unique as far as we know among bird species, you know, kind of, you know, raises their own stock a little bit here. Uh, also occasionally feeds on bats. So I can see Stephen thinking, yeah, this is, this is really cool. That's really and, fascinating. you know, finally I'm thinking even Jack would love this bird because it's almost privateer like this. Oh yeah. When, when every, you know, kind of, bird it tends to you know the migration is a certain time of year the mating you know and the producing of young is a certain time of year this bird has a completely delayed breeding season it really doesn't come until late summer early autumn because it's a specialist hunter of migrating birds that pass through these mediterranean islands at that time of year so it sticks around it captures these small birds and, um, you know, so it's just hanging out on these coastal cliffs. It builds these colonies of nesting, which is fairly unusual, and um, gets all these incoming and, you know, migrants, and then takes off on its own migration here. So, you know, from these breeding colonies. So I, I think, you know, Jack would love it. Stephen would love it for multiple reasons. We love it, uh, as an O'Brien reference thought. I, I, I wouldn't say... Thank you, Patrick O'Brien. I had a fun time. <laughs> Excellent. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 to O'Brien for planting it for us. 10 out of 10, Mike, for digging it all up. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> wow. So uh, it's time then for Jack and Stephen to go and do some of their shore duties here in Mahon. Uh, and Jack asks Stephen to come along with him to pay respects to the Spanish commandant because that's that's customary. That's the first thing they have to do. The Spaniards are in charge of the territory, even though this is a British naval base. Um, the Commodore has to present his own ceremonial compliment then to the senior officer re- representing this nominal sovereignty that Spain has over Mahon. And he has to do that before he can then go on and talk about the, talk to the local British Admiralty people here. And this means it's going to be a very formal occasion. And this brings back a subject that we all love to hop on, which is Stephen's Stephen's turnout. Killick comments to Jack that even more than usual, Stephen can't be seen to go ashore in his ratty old black frock coat, the one that he's obviously worn while he's been operating or dissecting and without the benefit of an apron. So Jack takes Stephen aside. And convinces Stephen that for the sake of the squadron and the Adriatic crews, you know, in in front of the Spanish dignitaries as well as the Admiralty, Stephen needs to wear the special blue coat uniform that was allocated for naval surgeons by the Sick and Hurt Board. And Mike, I, I don't think we've heard very much about this uniform in all the time we've known Stephen. I've got a vague recollection that in Master and Commander, Aubrey might have mentioned something about how there's a there's a blue coat that you can wear, but nobody really bothers. So this is the first time in all the years and all these books that it has been called upon for Stephen to think about putting on this uniform. Stephen's resisted it in the past, including at recent social occasions like the dinner that took place aboard to welcome the new purser, Mr. Candish. 
So I think that they're still wrangling over this imposition that's placed on Stephen to wear the uniform as they get themselves ashore. And we mentioned earlier on that the pigtail steps is is an old favourite um, landmark. Um, the pigtail steps haven't changed, but Jack has, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Jack's at the top. He's completely out of breath, and he says that he's growing old. And Stephen says, "No." You've grown obese. You know, he says, you know, you've grown obese for eating like you did at the purser's dinner, this one you just mentioned, Ian. And, you know, Jack said, well, he only did that because he wanted to encourage the, the, the rather shy purser. To, of course. Know, are, of course, right. Then, then he wonders, he said, you know, I wonder how we ever got the purser in the first place. And Stephen says, well, when the officers were, co- you know, the, the officers from the merchantman were coming aboard the surprise they heard the crew moaning about not being able to find candles and said, you know, we wouldn't have this problem if we had a real purser. And so one of the Indiamen's officers confirmed that they did not have a purser and that's how they got him. I think, yeah. well, Jack says, you know, I'm really glad to have him, but I'd be even happier if they'd had another, you know, excellent master's mate to replace poor wantage. And he says, you know, uh, I think between him and O'Brien, they tell us that Wantage was on the surprise, came to Funchal. And uh, while they were there, when, you know, Jack and, and Stephen and the families were supposed to be touring, he went off into, you know, into the wild and started shacking up with a shepherdess and was presumably murdered when her husband, the shepherd, returned early. So, Ian, you know, even in retrospect, Yet another death, right? Yeah, and another death to kind of blend in with all the others to keep this tone going. Um, a little bit of an echo for me of Far Side of the World, was it? And Horner. Right, right. And, you know, death at the hands of a jealous lover. We've got all kinds of different deaths, all kinds of different contexts, all kinds of different, you know, gaps and uh, impact that the deaths leave behind in the community around them. Huh. So, as... As much trumpeted and as 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 befits somebody wearing the uh, sick and hurt board blue coat, Stephen, along with Jack, gets to meet Don Jose, the senior Spaniard in charge here, and then to go and report to Admiral Fanshawe. The Admiral thanks Stephen for being so good to his brother William at that horrible affair of Algeciras. He's talking about all the way back in Master and Commander. He says that... The brother now walks without crutches and can do astonishing things in a custom-made saddle. So, clearly somebody who's lost a leg. The Admiral's secretary takes Stephen then to meet with Colvin while Jack and the Admiral sit down and talk about convoys. And Jack sets this little uh, assignation with Stephen, just quietly says, if your conversation takes too long, we'll meet back at the Crown. Now, Mike, we've seen this before that as O'Brien gets deeper and deeper into these books, and as the list of backstoried secondary characters gets longer and longer, it can be hard for us, the reader, to keep track of them all. So this name Fanshawe rings a bell. Which of all the possible Fanshawes is the Port Admiral here? Yeah, yeah, it, it's so true. And you know, I was kind of thinking, wait, wait, hold on a minute. Algeciras and Port Admiral. Um, so first of all, Fanshawe, the Port Admiral, is a fictional character. He's the brother of an officer, William Fanshawe, who Stephen treated at the Battle of Alcazar, as you said, back in Master and Commander. 
Now, that officer, William Fanshawe, is not to be confused with our more recent Captain William or Billy Fanshawe right. uh, that, that we met in the Yellow Admiral, who had his wife, Dolly. They were, you know, uh, writing back and forth. You know, he was that Fanshawe was Jack's senior on the inshore squadron who told Jack about, you know, delivered Drunra's reprimand. Oh, and and who yes. Jack, you know, later came and yeah. saved from those two French frigates here. So um, a special thanks to, Ga- you know, to Anthony Gary Brown's uh, Patrick O'Brien muster book for, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. So he, <laughs> he helps us keep track sometimes when I'm going, wait, Fanshawe, I thought, no, no, Fanshawe's still in the Navy. No, he's not out. So they take Stephen out, uh, you know, as Jack's going to go talk to the Admiral, Stephen's going to go talk to this gentleman, Colvin. Uh, and O'Brien tells us it's somebody he's well acquainted with from London and Gibraltar, but you know, he's a little bit surprised that he's here. And he thinks, well, well, maybe he just means to limit their conversation to intelligence matters in the Adriatic. And Colvin greets Stephen earnestly, gives him slightly more pressure than usual when they shake hands. Colvin says he's happy to report that even though the ministry is growing more concerned about the Russian troops' procrastination and the possibility of this shocking intervention, you know, kind of cutting them off from, from Wellington, their banking friend, you know, who we met earlier in this book, has made a great beginning with the Adriatic shipyards. That's what he's really happy about. He's used his banking ties to call in all the loans of the shipwrights, large and small, who are concerned with French vessels. And they all work on borrowed money all the time. And by you know having their lines of credit cut off, they're not going to be able to pay their workers. Their workers are itinerant, skilled labor, mostly Italian. And if they you know payday comes and they don't get paid, they're likely to turn ugly. He asked Stephen if he has any moral scruples about dealing or allying with the Carbonari or the Freemasons. And uh, I, I had great fun with this because I was just up in, in Maine to see family. Uh, <laughs> my, my brother-in-law is a Freemason. So I had to say, oh, wow. well, I was reading about your order this week. And, and, you know, in this, Stephen and Colvin are both Catholics. And they said that some Catholics say that Freemasons are in league with the devil. And, you know, yeah. when, uh, you know, whenever there's a, a, a Freemason ceremony, you know, somebody there is, you know, is, dis- is the devil in disguise. Well, I, I was glad to re- to my brother, although I love that Stephen says such prejudices are largely irrational, and then goes on to say that anybody who could help end this war would have to be very vile indeed for him not to want to work with. Right. So we've had this mentioned a couple of times before, but it's, it has the potential to be a big part of the plotting that Stephen and Jack are doing to interfere with the activities of all these uh, shipyards. Uh, Mike, I'd never heard of the Carbonari. It sounds like a kind of pasta, but I had heard of Freemasons, just like you. And we know that the workers in these shipyards belong to this secret society, the Carbonari. The bankers, in turn, have great influence with other Freemasons and bankers and money men near the ports. And Colvin goes on to state his belief that the Carbonari will be very upset and with some encouragement, likely to seek incendiary revenge with this interruption to the flow of their money. Incendiary revenge, meaning setting the yards on fire. And Mike, it's funny, I've followed this conversation between Colvin and Stephen, and I'm thinking on another day, another Stephen might just possibly have 
kind of pitched in with the same level of enthusiasm. But it's pretty clear that Colvin is kind of waxing lyrical about this campaign and Stephen's really not in the mood for it. And O'Brien talks about how uh, setting the yards on fire could earn brilliant results, perhaps even a blazing success. And besides being rather kind of tacky imagery, it's not making Stephen like Colvin anymore at all. In fact, he tends to the opposite. Stephen points out that, in fact, burning all these yards randomly goes against British interests, since it's only the ones who are loyal to Napoleon that are dangerous. So you've got as much chance of doing harm to your cause as you have of helping your cause if you just go around burning everything that you encounter. Some yards, in fact, are loyal to the king, to the French king, and could either come over to Great Britain, which would be exactly what the Royal Navy needs, or could become allied ships, which could be valuable in a more general way in the Mediterranean. Burning everything indiscriminately eliminates the possibility of the Royal Navy cutting out prizes. And we get reminded that cutting out prizes is a sailor's delight and also a source of money and a sign of valor. Stephen asks then if Colvin's got any information specifically about individual shipyard loyalties and this is where Colvin's enthusiasm has to kind of sputter out a little bit. He says, well, we don't, because an agent belonging to another firm, which we might come back to in a second, mm-hmm. an agent belonging to another firm had committed a great indiscretion just before he, Colvin, had arrived. On the other hand, he says in the text here, we have all the details you could wish about the geographical and financial position of the yards and the presence expected by the bays, pashas, and local officials for various accommodations and forms of blindness. Now, Mike, um, is, is he just kind of rolling his eyes here at other intelligence agencies generally, or does he have a specific one in mind? It, it turns out O'Brien's got an answer for that question for us. Yeah, O'Brien tells us, that I'll just quote here, the other firm was an intelligence service of sorts, or rather a collection of services run by the army. And its agents often poached on naval preserves, sometimes doing serious damage and always causing a very high degree of resentment. And, and you know, I, I remember, you know, I've come back to this before and thought, wow. So they had and, and I think we kind of run into this a little bit earlier in the canon about, you know, different intelligence agencies inside the British government, sometimes sort of stepping on each other or certain ones that could get more information on where Stephen and Diana were in Spain than others. And, and I've always wondered, you know, we did some initial research into uh, intelligence agencies in this era, you know, back during COVID, we, that didn't come to fruition, a, a planned joint podcast. But um, I think we're working on maybe Maybe, uh, you know, digging a little deeper into this to find out what what was really actually going on in the intelligence service in in Great Britain at the time. Indeed. Let's just say, watch this space. We may have more to say about naval intelligence in the coming weeks. So Stephen's still pressing Colvin for any information that he can get about the shipyards. Um, Steve is obviously inclined to be much more nuanced and more subtle about the actions that we take in the Adriatic than Colvin was thinking. Colvin says he'll send the information right over and then hesitates and he says he may or may not have it with him and adds that Stephen must have been surprised to see him here rather than in Malta or Brindisi. And he's obviously referring in some kind of backhanded way to this 
indiscretion that he mentioned earlier. He says there'd been some unpleasantness associated with it. He, Colvin, is on his way to Gibraltar or London to clear it up. And, and Mike, again, this has a kind of echoes of of Mr. Secretary Ray being allegedly dispatched to Malta to, to sort things out. And I'm left thinking, is this guy Colvin on the level or is he another Ray? We'll have to wait and see. Colvin says he had heard that Commodore Aubrey's squadron was coming in and had stayed, therefore, to brief Stephen about the general state of Adriatic affairs and the details, he says, will be waiting for Stephen in Malta. They chat for a while about colleagues they've known, and then finally Stephen takes his leave, saying it is death to keep the Commodore waiting, even though the Commodore, we know, is going to be perfectly happy sitting in the lounge at the Crown having a pint or two. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I, and I love it. Right as you know, Stephen says it's death to keep the Commodore waiting. Jack is completing his conversation with the Admiral about refitting and replenishing the squadron, and begs his leave to attend an appointment with his surgeon at the Crown. You know, and O'Brien writes <laughs> these are Jack's words: "It would never do to vex a man you might next meet in the cockpit with you flat on your back and he's standing over you with a knife. He is not ordinarily an irascible creature, but I know that today he is with child to call upon your engineer." And the admiral says, "Oh, James Wright, you know he's a prodigy of learning. I'd give a five-pound note to see the two of them talking together." And oh. you know, all this talk about meeting at the Crown, perhaps having a pint or whatever it is they're having, oh, makes me a little thirsty. Yes, let's go and refresh our glasses, and we'll be back with you all after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, and if you're listening to the show before September 5th, 2023, would you consider helping us out and heading over to the British Podcast Awards website and casting a vote in the Listener's Choice category? Go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and let's see where we get to. So, welcome back. We hope you enjoyed your break. We wanted to take a couple of seconds to thank you all for staying in touch with us after the audiobook episode just a couple of weeks ago. Lots of you have been back to us on our social media with your thoughts and your responses to some of the things that we talked about in the episode. We've got some great pointers if you're looking for the different ways that you might be able to access different narrators' readings of the book. Uh, thanks to Phil on Patreon, who says that he's still able to download and listen to the Rick Jerem voiced versions in the UK via the library system. In the UK, there's an app called BorrowBox. It's usually free for members of local authority libraries that subscribe to it. And if your library has those audiobooks, you can access them. Same goes in the US, and uh, Cena on Patreon says, if you can get a New York City library membership, they have all of the Simon Vance, Patrick O'Brien audio on the Libby app over in New York. So good luck with any of you who've got a mailing address in New York. Um, we got recommendations for other audiobooks as well. Anthony Vogel on Facebook says that along with being a Patrick O'Brien super fan, for some reason he really enjoys Scandinavian thrillers, especially Lars Kepler. And he's been getting into reading one in print and one as an audiobook and even both together in parallel. Um, also on Facebook, Glenn Robinson says he had a particular recommendation for another uh, audiobook narration to look out for. He says it's the Rivers of London series. Uh, by Cobner Holbrook-Smith, and anything by Neil Gaiman. I think we'd both second that. Neil Gaiman's writing is fantastic. Right. Uh, and the Brigadier Gerard book by Robert Degas. 
And again, again on Facebook, Rob Bolton, old friend of ours, says he had recently re-listened to a couple of the Hornblower books read by Christian Rodska. And I'd never heard of Christian Rodska, but those audiobooks are out there. Uh, Rodska has also read the uh, kids series, and maybe he would be a good candidate for another voice to try out on the canon. Very good. Um, meanwhile, you might remember that one of our guests was Chris Durbin. Adam Carrier also got in touch with us on Facebook to recommend Chris Durbin's audiobooks too. So it's nice to hear the tie-in. And uh, by the way, quite a few of you joining in to share our enthusiasm for the idea that one day maybe a female Patrick O'Brien narrator voice might be, uh, might be an addition. So thank you for all of those. We'll share any more thoughts on audiobooks as they come in. Keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. You know the coordinates by now. Uh, Mike, let's get back with our story here. All right. Well, you know, when we left right before break, the Admiral said to Jack that he'd give a five pound note to see Stephen and Mr. Wright talking. And O'Brien tells us that the site is not worth nearly so much at first. You know, Wright <laughs> apparently comes to the door, is missing his glasses and mistakes Stephen standing there at the door for a debt collector, given the uniform that Stephen has on. And he <laughs> hollers for him to leave, you know, cusses Stephen. Stephen saying, you know, wait, 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 I've come to you. You know, I'm not a debt collector, you know, you know, file on all of them. I'm a member of a royal society. And, you know, Wright's having none of it and is screaming at him. And Stephen's telling him how I've met you before and who I was sitting with. And finally, Wright, you know, hears some of this, invites him in, finds a pair of glasses and says, what uniform is that that you're wearing? <laughs> and so I think Stephen is like, you know, I, I knew I shouldn't wear this thing, but yeah. he explains this old, rarely worn surgeon's uniform. And Stephen says he's there because he's been told that Wright knows more about the physical properties of substances and their resistance to the elements that, you know, really anybody else. And he asks if he's ever reflected upon a narwhal's horn. And Stephen realizes as he's speaking that Wright's attention has completely wandered. And, and Wright, now kind of coming back, says, oh, I remember you now, Stephen. Ah, right. now as comes. a matter of fact, my cousin, Christine Heatherly, the widow of Governor Wood, had just mentioned you in a letter. Said she had prepared the bones of a creature that interested you and wondered if she might you know, do right to send it to Somerset House where they take care of specimens from members of the royal. And Stephen says, oh, you know, I have the fondest recollections of dear Mrs. Wood. And, you know, I suspect the bones are of my tailless potto. And so, you know, I'm thinking, oh boy, in the middle of this, here we are, Governor Wood, Christine again. Wow. You know, wow. Is this, <laughs> this can't be just a coincidence that, you know, we, this keeps coming up here. No. Ah, oh, oh, Christine Wood, says part of my brain. Ah, oh, Pottos, says another part of my brain. Because I've been long of the opinion that we're a little bit too overwrought with our sloth philia. I think we should get, be getting into Pottos these days. Anyhow, um, I think we all know what a Potto is. Some of us might not have been sure what a narwhal tusk or a narwhal horn was. So we get a bit of exposition for us between Wright and Stephen. Stephen describes the narwhal species, describes its horn as being made of a, a kind of ivory that only the males wear. And Wright starts this kind of long, creaking laugh, noting that the narwhal is like us in that the male alone wears the horns. Ho, 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 ho. 
jokes about adultery are always funny. So, so we've got this little wrapping up here of a, a joke between Wright um, and Stephen um, in the context of Patrick O'Brien bereaved from his wife, as is Stephen Maturin, referring to Christine, referring to the impotent Governor Wood, now making a joke about a male getting horns and Christine returning Stephen's bones. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of male locker room humor going on in this sentence here. Ah, and Wright's really not sure what to make of all of this and uh, asks Stephen's forgiveness for being facetious. And I love the fact that we don't get a direct description of Stephen's response here. It's very, very clear that Stephen has completely blanked him with this effort at kind of uh, boys' humor and Wright spots this clearly enough to offer an apology. Wright moves on to safer ground when he asks Stephen about the functions of this narwhal horn. And Stephen says, and this is something that's baffled marine scientists for a long time as well, the function of the narwhal horn is unknown. Some say that it could be a weapon, but there are no reports of it being used in that way. It's doubtful that it could be as any kind of a spear for catching food, since the female who doesn't have a horn clearly doesn't starve either. The horn has got this strange shape with parallel spirals going in left-hand turns up towards the tip, and then larger toruses, undulating turns, rising in the same direction. And Stephen wonders whether the function of these could be to strengthen the horn without adding bulk, or maybe to diminish turbulence. And Mr. Wright, I think, is probably on the track of turbulence because he asks about the way that the narwhal swims. He says, however, his opinion would be worthless unless he could examine and study the horn for himself. So begins the next chapter, I think, in the narwhal horn plot arc here. Okay, so Stephen says, yes, okay, I have a small but perfect specimen. You should come aboard the surprise tomorrow to examine it. And I think wrapping up and putting a button on all this uh, this phallic humor, Stephen invites the facetious Mr. Wright to come aboard and see my small but perfect tusk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Patrick O'Brien here. <laughs> well, yeah, finally, Jack and Stephen meet on the steps of the crown. And from a distance, Stephen thinks Jack might be drunk. He says that he hopes Jack has not met with some young compliant person overwhelmed by the gold lace on his person. Jack says, never in life. You know, in the service, I'm called Aubrey the Chaste. <laughs> <laughs> by, by hardly anybody at all. <laughs> exactly right. He says, I did indeed meet with a young person, but it's one who, you know, shaves almost. <laughs> and he says, it's young John Daniel. And, you know, Stephen's kind of looking at him blankly. He says, you know, he was a shipmate with us in Worcester. Ah, he says, Woodbine, the surprises master mate, knows him well. And this Daniel, a really small fella, has been in the Navy for quite some time and has developed a great interest and experience in mathematics and navigation and could make a good, real master's mate for them on surprise, right? Yeah. So somebody who would be a mate to the actual master as opposed to master's mate, just the position there or the yeah. rank. Now, he's without a ship, though, at the end of this, you know, his his vast experience, you know, his pirate privateer that he was on was robbed by pirates. And, and so he has, you know, barely the shirt on his back and is seeking a position. So yeah. Jack's keen to say, ah, I could finally have my man here. 
well, this is all starting to fall into place. As Jack and Stephen are standing there talking, a young midshipman runs up and gives the message to the Commodore that the Admiral desires him to deliver a letter into the hands of Dr. Maturin. So Jack takes the letter, hands it to Stephen, and tells the midshipman that you can pass the message back to the Admiral that his orders have been carried out. And back on board the ship now, Stephen tells Jack that he has been so indiscreet as to invite Mr. Wright to dine aboard the Surprise. And I think he means indiscreet in the sense of he, he's taken a liberty offering the ship's hospitality to this unknown quantity, uh, at least unknown to the wardroom uh, of Mr. Wright. Jack's delighted, he says. That's absolutely fine. We'd love to hear Mr. Wright. We'd love to learn about hydrostatics. He suggests that they invite Jacobs too, and they could play some music, noting that all of these other mathematical chaps delight in a fugue. Now, fugue is a branch of composition that dates back to the Renaissance times where you have a, a theme restated and weaving in and out of other uh, repetitions of the same theme, at least in two, normally in three or four voices, often written for choral groups. And fugue is absolutely an exercise in puzzling out how you can make the pattern of the melody overlap and link up. It's kind of like a crossword puzzle in music. They've talked a bit about how they might share a Zelenka fugue. And it's funny, Patrick O'Brien once wrote an essay about the musical references in the canon, and he was trying to sound very erudite and saying that, you know, it, it wasn't all just Haydn and Mozart. There were all these other composers of the 18th century, including Zelenka. And I, that's a, a little bit of a reach, I think, by O'Brien. Not very many of Zelenka's compositions were Stephen and Jack friendly. Not very many of them were instrumental chamber music. A few of them had a bit of fugal writing in them. Um, we, we might get to, to, to listen to some fugal music from Zelenka shortly. Here's a, a two-part fugue from a trio sonata, which is, to be honest, a little bit unsatisfactory. So that's a Zelenka two-part fugue from a trio sonata. Um, it's small beer as far as I'm concerned. We might dig into some more Zelenka when we get a bit more to work with on this reference later on. Jack goes back to the subject of John Daniel, this, you know, Wattage's potential replacement. He tells Stephen it would be cruel to introduce him to the birth in his prodigiously shabby clothing. And I, I'll quote O'Brien here because this is great. This is Jack, you know, quickly moving his foot to his mouth. He says... He's a poor, short, bent, meager, ill-looking little creature, very like, uh, that is to say, <laughs> you are the only grown person aboard whose clothes would fit him. <laughs> I just I just cackled out loud on the flight listening to this one here. You shall have the back, of course, as soon as he can whip up something to appear in on the quarterdeck. So you know, here's Jack's roundabout way of trying to ask Stephen for some clothes because, you know, uh, of, of his appearance relative to Stephen's here. But it seems that Stephen's in, in a, a better humor. He, he just either, you know, doesn't pay it any attention or misses it. Right. So uh, we, we move straight on to Stephen calling for Killick and calling for the kind of good clothing and shoes and handkerchief that he wants Killick to retrieve from, the, from Stephen's cabin. 
and Killick is about to protest, and the text says he opens his mouth, shuts it again, and to Jack's astonishment says, aye, aye, sir, and repeats the entire list. And, and Mike, I, I love this because, you know, Killick's been caught out. I think he was listening behind the door, and he's been just told to get on and get us this clothing here. You mentioned at the very beginning, this chapter is about the rise and fall of Killick. I think Killick's star is kind of flickering here. I don't know if it's going to burn brightly again in the chapter. We'll have to see. The text says, Stephen was not surprised. It was but another example of that singular deference that attended not only his state, but also that of men condemned to death. And Stephen's changing the subject a bit here when he says, Jack... Pray tell me about your master's mate. Now, Mike, it's really interesting here. We don't get any immediate first-hand description of how Stephen's feeling, but we get an idea of it from the description of how others are treating him and a little bit of his response to that. And there are two classes of people in the world in that last sentence there, those that are grieving for a dead loved one and those that are condemned to death. And that you would take to include probably people with a terminal illness as well. So Jack tells Stephen about the unusual service history of this young guy, John Daniel, um, how someone too small physically to really be an able seaman has developed the brains and the determination and the learning to become actually really skilled and really useful, all to help the family back home, to help his father and his family when uh, when the father's business was failing. So O'Brien tells us that the frigate's dinner from Mr. Wright was surprisingly successful. And, you know, to say the frigate's dinner was surprisingly successful, I, I've got to believe, <laughs> you know, surely the pun, abo- you know, aboard this frigate's prize was intended. I, maybe, I, who he, knows. pun would pick a pocket, Mike. Yeah, he would. <laughs> so, you know, Mr. Wright took to Jack and, and Stevens pleased that he, you know, even more, he took to Jacob, and he was a very involved guest. Stephen knew him from the, the Royal Society, be a little bit sullen, a little bit quieter at these things here. And he and Jacob are talking about the local varieties of Greek and Turkish. And we already know Jack's got all kinds of interest in the hydrostatics that he's mentioned here. Well, when they're talking about, you know, all these local varieties of Greek and Turkish, they get into how Jacob knew these. And, and he tells them, you know, this wasn't, because because Wright is saying you know gosh I could I could do Homer but I can't <laughs> speak the Greek dialects now because it's it's a different language it's a different Greek but Jacob says that he didn't have to study this he developed it because he lived among these people here uh, you know even the more remote varieties of Arabic and Berber archaic Hebrew dialects uh, of of you know very small groups of Jews that as a child, he traveled with his extended family. They were jewel merchants in the Levant. And Jack says, well, that must have been a really perilous business, you know, crossing mountains and deserts with parcels of jewels. Jack says, you know, I wouldn't do that without a troop of horse guards. And and Jacob has this great sentence. I'm I'm just going to quote it from the book. It said, you know, not unless I had a soul triply bound in brass should I ever dare to put to sea in a frail wooden affair drifting as the wind chooses. But as you know, sir, better than I, a little use makes it seem almost safe, even commonplace. To be sure, both mountain and desert can be mortal for one not brought up to them, but after some generations, they seem little more dangerous than a journey to Brighton. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just love this. It, you know, O'Brien's referred so many times that, you know, how many how many inches of wood between you know you and your fate are being on the ocean in a frigate like surprise. And, you know, Jacob's kind of put this into words here, saying, yeah, you know, you think nothing of it. Everybody else would think, are you crazy to go out in the ocean on this? <laughs> just like they would think our family was crazy to do this. But we learned how to do it. And then Jacob told him, you know, how they went about doing that. Right. They he says that uh, they traveled around in small family groups, that they would teach each other how to survive across the generations. And there will be this network of trusted associates, often related. Um, the network often include middle-aged women and young children as they travel around so that they look like a, a harmless, innocuous family group, to have a, a few guards at a, at a distance and some indifferent or some rather kind of flaky-looking horses and camels around as ostensibly their property. And he says that the presence of young and dirty children, and Jacob had played the role of being a young and dirty child, this presence of young and dirty children did away with any idea of wealth. And uh, in this role, he said, he had been bitten by a Beni Mazab camel and stayed among them there with a great aunt and learned their language while he healed from the camel bite. And he's getting into the middle of the peculiarities of the the language spoken by these particular nomads. uh, And the interest... Uh, on Wright's face was clearly fading fast when Killick came in to rejuvenate the feast with a spotted dog. And Mike, that nothing rejuvenates meal like a heavy pudding, right? Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 and 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 we'll we'll get in in, in another chapter or two to uh, the effect of a heavy pudding on various folks. But for Wright, he's you know, oh well, I'll just say O'Brien says his interest in food, however was as eager as Jack's in spite of his age. And after a while, he said in a voice of real authority, this is Mr. Wright speaking, the French may say what they please, and Apicius with his slave-fed moray eels was no doubt very well. But it seems to me that civilization reaches its very height in the glistening, gently modeled form of just such a pudding as this, bedewed with its unctuous sauce. And Jack says, how wholly I agree with you, sir. Allow me to cut you a slice from the translucent starboard end. (laughs) Excellent. High praise indeed for a pudding and very fair. Now, having been on shaky ground talking about the linguistic peculiarities of the nomadic Berber tribes, we've got onto two things that are a bit more okay with the rest of the gun room. That's uh, pudding and, of course, music. Now, Jack brings up the subject of music saying he's just heard of a bohemian composer called Zelenka, he of the fugues that we heard about a page or two ago. And Wright tries to flex a little bit of his knowledge by knowing that uh, Zelenka's first name is Dismas. Ah, yes, Dismas, I believe. Like anybody in any dinner party anywhere in the world has ever flexed that they know the first name of the bohemian composer Zelenka. Never mind. Jack goes on saying that he's been given Zelenka's Richakare for three voices, and he offers that they could play that unless Wright should prefer a different piece, the Locatelli C major trio. Wright says that he prefers the idea of the Locatelli because he talks about its dispassionate and geometrical trio that touches him the same way that Jack's paper on mutation and the precision of the equinoxes, considered from a navigator's point of view, touches him. I might get that, that tempted me to have a listen to the closest I can get to these two pieces. First of all, Zelenka didn't really, that I can find, write a Richakare for three voices. 
there, there is a richer car. A richer car is a uh, a fugue that characterizes its tunes by having long notes and a kind of slow pace. So there's a fugal richer car by Zelenka in his setting of the Miserere. It's not for three voices, but let's have a little listen. Now, I, I think that's nicer than the trio sonata fugue that we heard earlier on. And I think that's pretty abstract and pretty geometrical. I think that's pretty pleasing to a mathematical ear. Now, what about Locatelli? He wrote a handful of trio sonatas. Uh, readers of Master and Commander probably know that he wrote zero string quartets. But he did write some of these trios. One of them is in C major. So we've got an actual Locatelli piece to go after. And th- there is a movement in the Locatelli trio in C that has a sort of contrapuntal, a counterpoint, a call and response type character. Let's take a listen to that. Now, I've got to say, I like that better than the Zelenka, but it's not fugal and it's not abstract and it's not really mathematical. But anyhow, I think both of those, Mike, deserve a slot on our playlist and we'll let the listeners decide which do you prefer, Zelenka or Locatelli? Oh, I love a playoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and writes is, you know, the, the music is important to him because he wants to sit there and listen to it while he's holding Stephen's narwhal horn. So his intuition may give him some insight about the horn, as his intuition often does. And, you know, as they're talking about all this and setting this up, the Madeira keeps making its way round and round the table. And Stephen has noticed that Killick and his mate, who he calls a, an especially dwarfish third class boy, are, you know, kind of setting down full tankards and, and taking away these half-emptied decanters here. So they're they're taking a half-emptied one, then they're going and pouring it in their glasses, you know, in the next room and, and drinking it very quickly whenever they can. And Steve notices he has no moral, you know, a, a grounds. He's not judging it, but he is noticing that the boy is getting to be very near his limit. So, carrying on regardless of the state of the young boy, the officers in the gunroom finally drink the loyal toast. And Stephen decides that it's the moment to unite right with the narwhal horn. This had been promised in quite a big moment just a few paragraphs a few pages ago. Stephen asks Killick to go and bring the bow case, the bow case that contains the narwhal horn from Stephen's cabin. Killick returns with the horn out of the case, mistake number one, and starts making antic gestures with it at this third-class boy who's been overdoing it, drinking the last of the wine. The boy cries out, he chokes, he plunges forward drunk, he throws up everywhere, falling over, he grabs Killick's knees. Killick falls, the narwhal horn breaks in the middle with a sharp crack, and the long sliver of narwhal horn shoots into the great cabin. Jack then calls for the bosun, for swabbers and the master at arms. 
Bondon appears and takes in the situation and in cold, silent fury, says the book, he runs the speechless Killick away forward. The master at arms drags the boy off to the nearest pump. The swabbers have the cabin clean and dry in no time. But Mike, th- this is a, a real moment. That not, not just the the crack of the narwhal horn, but the coincidence of you know Killick behaving like an ass and the boy throwing up and... Oh, this this feels like a moment of a of, of a low ebb, if you're of a superstitious kind. Yeah, absolutely. After Killix made so much of this narwhal horn and and the hand of glory, you know, here is one of their two huge lucky pieces busted to pieces here. Now, when Mister Wright is sitting there, he's he's on one of the the chests, kind of at the side of of this cabin, and uh, he's got the horns pieces he's picked them all up he's carefully arranged them put them kind of back together holding them there when Stephen comes back with his cello and musical scores mm-hmm. and and writes that Stephen must be grievously distressed Stephen says he really doesn't mind it well Wright says i've got some excellent cement and, and it will knit the tooth this horn back together with all of its original strength he says i can take it with me i can repair it and Stephen says, I'd be infinitely obliged to you, sir. But when Wright, you know, kind of interrupts him and says, you know, I've often done the same thing before with cousin Christine's skeletons years ago. And he says, well, you know, let's go ahead. I'm going to muse over the lower half of the horn where the whirls are and the spirals are so obvious while you all are playing music. Hmm. And here comes the close of the chapter. And it, it's been such an up and down chapter. We've had such an intense kind of doom-laden moment here. We've got to get some some comfort as we uh, close the chapter out. Jack murmured in Stephen's ear, You mean to play, Stephen? Why, certainly. Bondon, called Jack, place the music stand and light along my fiddle. Do you hear me there? Aye, aye, sir. Music stands and light along the fiddle it is. End of chapter three. Wow. And Mike, it, 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 it's a very short chapter, but we've had our fair share of emotional ups and downs. And we, we, it's noticeable that we're ending on this note of Jack questioning whether Stephen can really bring himself to play in amongst not only his bereaved condition, but also what ought to be a shock at the breaking of the narwhal horn. But Stephen's really, so far outwardly at least, not really very affected. Yeah, and I, you know, it's it's funny. I really, this is kind of like a big red light going off for me here. Yeah. You know, Stephen's not at all concerned about the Nalwar horn. I mean, Wright thinks he's going to be upset. Jack's like, no, you're not still going to play, are you? And, yeah. and on the one hand, you know, I'm I'm glad it's not yet another huge thing in Stephen's life because you know, things have not been going well. But I'm hoping that it's not some like complete apathy from yeah. his grief, you know, that, you know, he has, you know, kind of like depression, you just take no joy in anything. But I, I thought to myself, okay, if I'm, I'm giving Stephen the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's one of those times when we reflect on, or we've been recently reminded what's really important in life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. And what's important for Stephen, we're certainly still reflecting on, What's important for the crew? Well, they've got their own superstitions, suffering a bit of a setback with the destruction of the narwhal horn. And we've got Jack and we've got the naval kind of institutions as well. And on the the naval front, 
things appear to be heating up. The, the surprise is about to be set in chain uh, to use gold and mercenaries to stop the Russians from joining the troops that are reinforcing Wellington. We've got uh, a new commander in the fleet, hopefully to replace Pomfret. We've got improving standards of gunnery. We've got intelligence missions. We've got the naval mission in the Adriatic. Uh, we said last week that they need to get a move on, but it does seem like things are moving along swiftly apace. So, Mike, we've got, we've got this odd two-speed plot going here. We've got the very, very slow unraveling of just what state Stephen is in. We've got the odd jeopardy with the superstitious uh, artifacts like the novel horn. But we've got what seems like a, a straight-ahead and fast-paced military mission. I'm not sure where all of this is going to carry us. Now, and, you know, speaking, you know, we said a minute ago about Stephen getting a little perspective about the important things in life. I mean, yeah. we know what's important in life. And I've just got to ask you, what do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, Mike, with all my heart. which he offers that they should play. Dog barking again. Mike, can you hear the dog barking there? I, I could that time. But we, there, there you go, Sam. Now, now oh, we have dogs right. on both sides of the Atlantic. For, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's because mom's home. Oh, that's exactly what happened with Mosey in last week's outtake. <laughs> <laughs>